Hey everybody, Chris Peters here, and this is Talking Hockey Sense. It's episode 97 of the podcast, and plenty to talk about today. And it's going to be a little bit of a different episode today, because I feel like there's really only one topic that matters right now. And I know that the news cycle can kind of go fast, and we can move on from things pretty quickly, but... I think that we all need to continue the conversation about what happened with Adam Johnson over the weekend in England. Um, And that is where we're going to start today. So we're going to talk about for a good chunk of the podcast. And there's a lot of different facets that we need to discuss. Obviously, the, the how and the why of what happened. But where we go from here is the the other important conversation. There's also been a little bit of a distraction in terms of what's happening surrounding the Adam Johnson discourse that has interrupted the conversation that we should be having. Um, And there's a lot that we still don't know and a lot that we need to find out going forward. But I think we all know that this is a situation that is largely unprecedented in my personal lifetime and probably for most of you as well. Um, We're talking about an athlete dying on the field of play or in this case, the ice surface. And that, when you when you put it in just the simplest terms like that, when you just say it, we a player died because they were playing hockey. You can't just overlook that and move on. And I'm not saying that people are doing that because obviously there's a lot of people that are going to be dealing with this uh, in a a very specific and real manner uh, in England. But I think that we as a hockey community, beyond rallying around Adam Johnson's family and loved ones, which absolutely we should do and are continuing to do, but we as a hockey community need to have this discussion about player safety, about the dangers of hockey, about the the various things. And I'm not going to try to preach to you about neck guards or anything like that. But I think we need to have the discussion about this because there is not a single excuse that is good enough to say this should have happened. This shouldn't have happened. It should never happen. It can't happen. But it did. And I think we need to talk about that more about the fact that we can't just chalk it up to it's a fast sport, it's a dangerous game, which is true. But in my lifetime, in at least at the professional level, this has never happened before. It's certainly not the first time somebody has died as the result of a skate cut. I, I can't, you know, I immediately thought of Teddy Balkind and the, the, the high school player that, that this happened to not that long ago in Connecticut. And the thing is, is that, you know, at a high school game, there's a certain level of medical care that we can expect. It should be vastly different at the, at the professional level. These are paid athletes. These are players that are, are moving faster, that the game is more dangerous at the professional level because of the speed of the game. But we should have this. This just should not have happened and it shouldn't happen anywhere. So before we get into that, Let's center this discussion around Adam Johnson first and, 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 and remembering him and thinking about him. And because ultimately, this is a story that is about Adam Johnson. We lost Adam Johnson in an accident on a hockey rink. And, you know, 
I didn't know Adam, but obviously I knew his career. I followed, you know, following college hockey as closely as I do, following um, the world of prospects as closely as I do, and, and certainly undrafted free agents. I'm very familiar with his story, his path, and, and where he went. And I want to focus on that first because obviously, you know, you can read uh, Michael Russo at The Athletic had a, had a beautiful um, story on Adam Johnson with many of his friends and former teammates talking about him. And, you know, in these times we, we expect to hear great things, but it sounds like Adam was really a special person. And that's the, that's the thing that makes it always is hard, but that makes it even harder knowing that, you know, a bad thing happened to a very good person. Um, and somebody who was beloved by his hockey community and also his family and, and, and his friends. Um, and so, to, to bring it to the hockey discussion, I mean, like this is a player that is one of the great success stories of hockey because he's he didn't have all of the, um, you know, the advantages that some players do. Uh, he, you know, played in, in, in Hibbing, Minnesota, played high school hockey at the Class A level. Um, and really when he was a sophomore in high school, that's when people started to take notice of him because he led his team in scoring. He led them to the XL Energy Center, to the, the Minnesota State High School Tournament, which is every dream. I mean, the, the, as the sorrow of, of Adam Johnson's loss is, is, is impossible to fathom. But I think there is some solace in the fact that this is a player that achieved so many amazing things in a short amount of time. Um, in his 29 years, you know, he, he got to experience a lot of the joys that every player hopes to experience in their career. He got to lead his team as a young player to a state tournament and play in the XL Energy Center um, and have that opportunity that, that so many Minnesota kids love. He was an outstanding USHL player for the Sioux City Musketeers. And, and I, you know, the, the, my heart goes out to the Musketeer family because this is a team that has dealt with too much tragedy of late. Uh, Matisse Kivlenix was was you know who, who died a few years ago in that tragic accident. Um, he was a, a Sioux City Musketeer. Adam Johnson was a Sioux City Musketeer, and um, you know the, you think about those players become such a part of a community um, and are remembered fondly. I mean, you go to any USHL arena and you will see jerseys from decades ago of people still wearing those jerseys because that's how much these players mean to these people and they're that's their jersey that's they're not going to make that change but you know played at the sioux city musketeers uh in his best season in the ushl he finished second in league scoring behind kyle connor um and uh and you know that and just ahead of brock besser as well so two guys that have become nhl stars um and and adam johnson was a big part of that he also played at the junior club world cup which uh um, we don't see teams go to very much anymore, but he was the leading scorer of the entire tournament at the Junior Club World Cup where a USHL team, the Sioux City Musketeers in that case, went and played teams from around the world. Um, and, you know, he was was there. Then he went to Minnesota Duluth and at Minnesota Duluth, he became uh, a standout player. And by his sophomore year, he was a top scorer and all this, you know, led a team to the NCHC title. This is right before we really started seeing uh, Minnesota Duluth take off as a team um, and and go for uh, um, you know national championships and things like that. And Adam Johnson was a part of that. But then he signed with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and then you know went through the AHL, made his NHL debut, and and his, the only goal he ever scored in the NHL was in Minnesota. 
So very fitting that the Minnesota-born kid gets to score uh, against the Minnesota Wild. And, you know, you could actually hear the cheer on the video. If you watch the video of his first goal, it's a cheer in a visiting building because that many people were there to support him. And the thing is, is like, you know, he was playing in Europe for the last couple of years. And I think that we always look at like look at players and 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 to have reached the heights that Adam Johnson reached in his career makes his career just a tremendous success. And, you know, the guys that don't get to play a hundred or a thousand game, you know, or or even 20 games in the NHL by playing in just one, by doing, you know, by reaching the professional level period, your career has been a tremendous success. And I think that that's another thing that should not be lost in this is that Adam Johnson was a tremendous hockey player who had a great career and, you know, was, was really still only in the middle of it. And, and that's obviously quite sad as well. But I, I think it's important to remember the journey of a player the work that it takes and that you can work so hard and you might not be a, a long-term superstar in the NHL. Most people won't be most players, even that make the NHL will not be superstar players, but to have made it and to have achieved his dreams at a young age is pretty impressive. And for a guy that was never drafted, you know, that came out of small school, in Minnesota, you know, played in the USHL, you know, went to Minnesota Duluth. This is a guy that that earned every single thing that he got, including you know the opportunity to continue his career in Europe. So that's Adam Johnson's hockey story, at least. And obviously, there's a there's a much larger story about who he was as a person, which is the saddest part is that we've lost that person. But we also have to talk about what happened, right? We, we we have to talk about it, and, and I want to address a lot of different things. But the reason that I think, you know, we can talk about this today is because, you know, this is, this is the conversation we have to have is what happened, how do we prevent it from ever happening again? It just cannot happen. So let's go to the incident in question. If you have not seen the video, I don't recommend watching it. Um, I felt that it was important for me to watch it um, after, especially after the discourse that we've seen over the last 48, you know, plus hours where the conversation really shifted into a very dark place that I don't think it needed to go to. But, you know, what happened on Saturday is that, you know, Adam Johnson was cutting across the middle of the ice, trying to cut back around a defender. And as the video will show that, you know, the Sheffield Steelers player, Matt Petgrave, was kind of off balance. But also, I think there was an attempt to at least impede Johnson's progress with his leg, maybe by lifting it, just to just to make maybe force him to go around or, you know, just to slow him down a little bit. Obviously, if that was if that is what happened, and we don't know that for sure, because I'll, I'll get to the the uh, the eyewitness accounts from the players next. But the you know because we're obviously we're watching on a grainy video, and you, you know it's not the best it's not the best look at anything. But you know comes through, and obviously there was you know Adam Johnson was a cr- incredibly fast skater, and. I think the force with which he hit Petgrave's leg and then the leg kind of goes up and also Petgrave was a little bit knocked off balance as well 
So he didn't have great control of his body at that point. And that's what led to the violent collision that ultimately ended in Adam getting cut and unfortunately, you know, losing enough blood where, you know, he, he, he died. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's a very difficult thing to watch. And again, I do not recommend watching it. Um, I feel just horrible for everybody that had to see that. And also all the people that were in the building when that happened and and the trauma that they must be facing at this very moment. Um, but I do think that, you know, what, what happened was, was to me, as it was classified, it was an accident. There is no chance Matt Peckgrave stuck his leg out or even just was off balance and connected in a, in a way that he meant to do that kind of damage. And there's been all this conversation about how Matt Peckgrave led the league in penalty minutes. It doesn't make him an evil person. And it doesn't, and even if he did stick his leg out, I don't think it was a, it was not in a malicious way. Now this will continue to be investigated and it should be investigated when there's a loss of life on the field of play. And there's a, you know, there, there was an incident as violent as this one was, there has to be an investigation. That doesn't mean that Matt Peckrave is a criminal. And I think that that has been overblown to such a degree that it is distracted us from everything else we need to be talking about. And it's just an ugly, ugly place. And Matt Peckrave has been getting death threats. He has been getting criticized all over. He's been called a murderer. And I don't think that's anywhere close to the truth. I don't know the facts completely, but I don't think that they're, you know, we without knowing what, what's in, what the intent was or anything like that, I don't know how you can make that incredible leap. And I'm telling you right now, that was no kick. It was not a kick. And that's the thing that really bothers me is that this is a conversation that we are having at this moment. And it's not even, I I just don't think it's, it's particularly helpful and or true. And so I want to read to you what was put on Twitter by Weston Mashad, who, who played in the ECHL last year. He's a former um, a Colorado college and university of North Dakota player. And we're going to throw it up on the screen as well for those of you that are watching. Um, but I just want to read this because Weston Mashad is a member of the Nottingham Panthers, which is the team that Adam Johnson was on, was on the bench and saw this happen. And I want, I want to, to talk about this real quick. So here's what Weston wrote on Twitter on October 30th. I need to address something about the accident. We wholeheartedly stand with Matt Petgrave. The hate that Matt is receiving is terrible and completely uncalled for. I was at ice level on the bench closest to the accident. I saw both players moving fast. The unintentional clip of the Panthers player's leg by the Sheffield player caused the somersault. It's clear to me his actions were unintentional and anyone suggesting otherwise is mistaken. Let's come together and not spread unwarranted hate to someone who needs our support. Now, Weston is going through this incredible amount of grief of losing a teammate, the shock of seeing what they saw, and yet I just think about the compassion in his heart to come to the aid of Matt Petgrave, who obviously has been distraught by this and who has now been vilified for what is the worst possible mistake. 
or and, and even as Weston says, there was a situation where his his leg clips another player and he's off balance. So, like I said, I can't even tell you with certainty that he stuck his leg out intentionally. People will see what they want to see and believe what they want to believe. That's what I believe. That's what I thought I saw. And we'll let the facts come out as they come out. But I think that Matt Petgrave at this point does not deserve to be vilified. And the division that this has created and the ugliness that this has created distracts us from what's important. So that brings me to the next point. So what do we do now? Well, as we've seen, a lot of players and a lot of teams are starting to at least make available neck protectors, neck guards. After watching the video, my fear is that I don't even know if a neck guard would have, with with the, the way that they're made, I don't know if it would have necessarily saved his life. I do think that some level of protection is better than none and that we have the technology and we should be using it. Whether or not that should be mandated is another discussion. I do think that players have some autonomy in these decisions, but I also would like to say to NHL players and and players across the hockey world that don't want to do it because it's it's you know uncomfortable or you don't like the way it looks or how it feels, you know, you wear that protection for yourself, but I also think you wear it for other people as well. And I think about, you know, to you're wearing it for your mom and dad, you're wearing it for your friends, your teammates, you're wearing it for the the opposition to create a safe environment. You know, so I do think that protecting yourself, especially in this instance, is also a great act of of, you know, camaraderie and, and, and understanding among all of us that we need to do more to protect each other. Um, and, you know, obviously, we don't want to see these situations continue to happen. Hockey, as we said, it's a dangerous sport. It's a fast sport. This is a freak thing. This is not something that will happen a lot. But that it happened, we have to acknowledge it and have to fix anything that we can to do it. Now, I don't think the NHL is going to mandate neck guards. I do think we're going to see a larger number of players wearing them voluntarily. I think that you know many youth organizations do mandate the neck guard. The luck, the good, the great thing about youth hockey, in most cases, kids are not getting their skates sharpened to the point that the professionals are, where the sharpness is going to be as dangerous as what we saw. But I think it's important for parents to have that discussion with their players to make sure that their understanding of why to wear the protection and what what else they can do with it. I do think that this is going to create some supply chain issues. So I, you know, I think that there's if if you're going to get a neck guard, get it soon. Um, I think that the manufacturers, you know, Bauer, CCM, all of the hockey manufacturing companies will up the production of these because I think the the demand is going to skyrocket as it should. Um, the English Hockey Federation is going to mandate neck guards at all levels in England. Um, they are going to take that action. They can't mandate that immediately because they're concerned about those same supply chain issues. Um, they don't want to penalize players who simply can't get the neck guard because they're not available. So that's that's another step. Um, the other thing that I think really a lot of ice arenas and hockey, you know, higher level hockey, like, you know, in, in certain leagues like the USHL, the ECHL, you know, a lot of the leagues, a lot of junior leagues, um, it is mandated by those leagues to have an ambulance on site for games. 
And I, it is an expense. It is something that, you know, you, you, you hope you don't have to use it, but you have to, it is required to have that. Um, I'm only, you know, only reading reports from out of England and I am, you know, I'm not sure if there was an ambulance on site based on what I've read. It didn't sound like there was, but you know, that's, that's the other thing is that at certain levels of hockey, it just, you have to have it. You have to have an ambulance on site. You have to have advanced or advanced medical personnel. Hockey is a dangerous sport. It is a place where people can get hurt. There are sharp objects. There are the hard boards. There are all these situations. We've seen plenty of people have catastrophic injuries, but there have been very, very, very few deaths. And now that we've seen one at the high, at a very high level of hockey, we need to continue to do more to, to protect our players, to, to make our game safer, and to ensure that this never happens again. And the sad part is, is that we might be doing all of that and we will do that and things happen. This is one of the saddest things I can ever recall, you know, seeing on, on an ice surface. I have been in the building um, for catastrophic injuries on the ice. Um, I've seen bad things at various arenas over the years, but those people did not lose their lives. And, The fact that it happened, we need to continue this conversation at every single level of hockey. I've got two youth hockey players. I know a lot of you out there have youth hockey players. And, you know, having these conversations with a lot of people, even in my neighborhood, or or, or I was at the dentist's office today, and I had a conversation with the hygienist about, you know, hockey and, and is it really that dangerous? And, you know, I think we have to remind people that, you know, there are ways to protect yourself. There are ways to to make this happen. And, you know, to, to make this game better. Um, and I think we need to continue to have, have those discussions. And, you know, I, I still, I, I, I'm still in a bit of shock, you know, over this, especially, you know, a player that you cover, a player that you've watched a player, and then to see this happen. Um, and, but the thing that has probably surprised me even more is just like, this should be the biggest story in hockey period. And for whatever reason, maybe it's because it happened in England. Maybe it's because, you know, it, it, he wasn't a superstar NHL player, but this conversation feels like it's doing, and maybe it's because of the distracting arguments that were had over, over, um, you know, the, the, the whole incident as a whole, but it just, it feels like, like we, we need to continue having this discussion and we, we can't, you know, there's a lot of big news in hockey. We're going to talk about that today here too. We're not, but but I think that this is the issue right now that most critically needs to be addressed in the game. I wish I had more answers for it. I think a lot of us do, but the first step is probably the net guards, and then also you know continuing to find more ways to make the game safer. Uh, so that we never have to go through something like this again. But I also want to pause, you know, on this just to say, you know, my heart and I know the hearts of all of us go out to Adam Johnson's family, to his teammates, to his friends, to everyone that, you know, every every one of the lives that he's touched. And by the by the look of things, there were quite a few. And I my heart also goes out to all the folks in Nottingham and and Sheffield and the people that that witnessed this. Um I know that it will likely be very difficult to forget or not. They, I don't think they'll ever forget. 
Um, but I do hope that all of the people involved and Matt Petgrave and, and everyone else gets the help that they need. And that if you yourself watch the video or feel somehow traumatized by this, that you also address that because this was one of the most rattling things I can remember since I've covered it is, I mean, it just plain is the most rattling thing I've ever covered. Um, and I think that we all need to take a second to, to really think about that and, and to, uh, you know, to, to certainly if you need help to get it and then, um, you know, just continue to send out an, an outpouring of support for the Johnson family as well. Cause, uh, this is just unimaginable and, uh, I hope it never happens again. Okay. So I do want to talk a bit about some of the other things that, that have been in the news. Um, and we'll also answer some of your questions on prospects because, you know, the NHL draft and, and everything, uh, we, we cover that every week and we got some questions on that, got some questions on, um, on uh, on some pet prospects as well. Um, and there's really no easy way to transition out of this. But I, I did want to talk about a couple of things in the news in the prospect world. The first thing being that uh, Elliot Friedman from Sportsnet reported that the NHL draft will be decentralized. Um, there, you know, teams will, after this season, go to a format where they are in their respective cities, where they're in, you know, war rooms like we see in the NFL more. Um, and, you know, what you know, they're able to to make their picks from there. And then some of the picks will be at the central location. Um, you know, this obviously works for the NFL. The NFL draft is still a huge deal. The team's not being there. doesn't seem to really make a difference. Um, I do think in hockey, it is a little different. I do think that there's some things that will be lost with this. You know, I think we talked a little bit a few weeks ago, you know, the, the opportunity for teams to kind of reward their scouts for the long year by bringing them up on stage, helping them make the pick, you know, handing the jersey, shaking the hands, all that stuff. Um, you know, a chance to be recognized for their, you know, their involvement in the process. Um, but also, I think there's a lot of media stuff that comes out of that. Having everybody centralized um, allows for more storytelling. It allows for more opportunity. I think, you know, you look at all the different things that come out of a draft and, and in terms of trades and things like that. You know, Brian Burke made the great point that, you know, the the, the Sedin twin trade that happened on the draft floor wouldn't have happened without the uh, or, or over the weekend without everybody in the same room talking face to face. And that's not a reason to keep it one way or the other, but it is, you know, it's interesting to hear. Um, and we do have a question about, you know, the decentralized draft. So we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. Um, but, you know, that this is, it, I'm disappointed that it, that it happened because I think that there's a lot of value in having the draft in a central location to have the big to do, to have all NHL teams there. Um, but in the end, will it make a material change to the draft? I don't think so. I, I, you know, it'll still be an important event. Um, hopefully the NHL can find other ways to attract people to, uh, the draft. I think that some of the allure is, you know, the opportunity to, to really see a lot of these great personalities of the game and the, and, uh, and of front offices and things like that. So, um, but yeah, but that's apparently happening and apparently the vast majority of teams voted to decentralize the draft. So could it be cost cutting? Could it be all sorts of things? Who really knows? But um, that ended up happening. And so we move on with no centralized draft. Up next, uh, another thing in the prospect world, the Ottawa Senators uh, have lost a draft pick, a first round draft pick as a result of a disputed trade. Um, and apparently the, the Senators did not provide the correct no trade list to the Vegas Golden Knights when they traded Evgeny Dadanov 
to the Golden Knights. The Golden Knights tried to trade him to Anaheim. Anaheim was on his no-trade list. Vegas didn't know that. That deal gets torn up, torn up, and then Vegas wasn't able to make a, a critical trade near the deadline that year. Obviously, they still won the Stanley Cup last year, but this happened two years ago. So, you know, no harm, no foul. I guess not. But at the same time, there was harm. There was foul because the Vegas Golden Knights were really upset about the, the way that that impacted their reputation, that they were going to try to trade a player who who had a no trade clause. Um, and so according to reports, they filed a grievance and that grievance now is going to result in Ottawa. They'll lose. They'll, they'll have their pick. They'll either lose the 2024, 2025 or 2026 first round draft pick as a result of the punishment handed down from the NHL. Now the senators are under new ownership. And so some had thought maybe they wouldn't go as harsh, but a first round draft pick is a very stiff penalty. And so Michael Andlauer, who's the new owner of the team has inherited a team that just lost a player for 41 games due to a gambling suspension because Shane, that that's what happened to Shane Pinto. And then they lose a first round draft pick. Um, and, and clearly the Sens still have a little ways to go to continue building what they're ultimately going to be as a as a team. They've got some central centerpiece players like Kachuk and Stutzla and Sanderson um, and, and a number of others, but they're not there yet. And so to lose a first-round draft pick in this time is, is pretty critical. So in the end, Michael Anlauer and, and P, like Pierre Dorian is no longer the general manager. That came down not long after the announcement that they were going to lose a first-round draft pick. Steve Steos is going to be there in the interim. And so now Ottawa has a lot to do. They're, they're, they've got a new scouting uh, director. They've got a lot of different things happening. I think that there's a lot of change yet to come in Ottawa, but there's been a bit of a dark cloud hanging over them for some of that stuff. So lots there. Um, and then also just uh, before we move on to our question and answer, Macklin Celebrini, the National Rookie of the Month in college hockey. He has eight goals. And if you look at his numbers compared to Jack Eichels and Adam Fantilli, the last two freshmen to win the Hobie Baker, he is right in between them in terms of his points per game. Um, and But the one thing he does have is eight goals, which is far better than either of those two players had in their first uh, six games. So Macklin Celebrini is off to an incredible start. National Rookie of the Month. I assume that will not be the last month he gets that honor. All right, we are now going to move on to our question and answer as we do every single week and always appreciate the questions that you guys send in to me. And let's get to it. The first one comes from a frequent questioner on this program, and we always like our regulars, and that is Avco Cup. And Avco Cup has asked, could you give a scout's perspective about the proposed change to a remote draft? Are there any positives or negatives the change could have for the scouting community? Um, okay. So from a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm not a scout, but obviously I cover the drafting and, and, evaluate the players. Um, in terms of the remote draft, there's a couple of critical things that I think are going to change that teams are going to have to contend with. The number one thing that I think is, is there are a lot of meetings that happen right around the draft. A lot of person to person in, you know, in front, uh, face to face meetings that happen at the draft players often will arrive days early They'll get there, and and teams can still do this. They can still send a contingent to wherever the draft might be, set up a a, a conference room at a hotel, 
and and have some of these meetings if they so choose. Most teams are not going to be swayed a ton by this, but uh, you know there have been a, a couple of examples where teams said, you know, we we were a little on the fence. We got that face to face meeting. We got the assurances that we needed, and we made the pick. So that's one thing that I think is a legitimate change that will um, potentially be negative for the draft and for the scouts themselves. Um, the other thing is just kind of when you're when you're there, you you start hearing a lot. Like the the scout rumor mill gets going, and that actually is the most accurate, typically in my in my in my uh, experience, most accurate around the draft floor because you start hearing a little bit more. Well, this team likes this guy. Like you know, I remember a couple years back, you know, you'd hear from all over that that this team was going to draft this player. And then sure enough, it happens. And that's, you know, that's an interesting kind of dynamic. So you, you kind of wonder about how does that decision process change a little bit when everybody's in the same room, you, you know, sure. There's probably things that you overhear or maybe you see, or you try to read things and that will be lost as well. But I don't think it, I don't think that that, happens as much on the draft floor so that you know and, and and keep in mind other sports don't have this problem you know they don't have everybody at the same place so there could actually be competitive advantages to being decentralized for these teams especially the teams that are more secretive that don't want anybody to have even an inkling of what they're doing they'll be able to do that in, you know, with, with some privacy. Now I do hope that every single TV network has cameras all over those draft rooms. And uh, if you guys want to provide a live feed of those rooms, that would be awesome. Although I don't think that's allowed. So probably won't get that, but those are some of the things that I think with the draft are, um, are, are, are interesting to, to discuss in terms of what it means between the uh, centralized draft and the decentralized draft. All right, let's talk a little college hockey next. And this next one comes to us from Nathan. Nathan asks, could you chat the rookie goalies in Hockey East? Michael Harabel, Jacob Fowler, and Cameron Whitehead. What have you seen so far? Three goalies, all three of them drafted. Harabel by the Arizona Coyotes, Fowler by the Montreal Canadiens, and Whitehead by the Vegas Golden Knights. Now, uh, Jacob Fowler was just named the Hockey East Goalie of the Month, so we're seeing some... uh, Early returns from the from the guy that was the USHL goalie of the year and the Clark Cup MVP last year. No surprise that he has been a top level goalie early on in this season. I mean, I think that he is a very special netminder that is only going to get better as he gains more experience. But just a quick run down the numbers: Fowler has appeared in six games so far as a true as as a freshman, a five one and zero record. 215 save uh, goals against average and a 919 save percentage. Um, and, you know, I think he's he's not had a ton of shots, but he did against Michigan State. He had 43 saves on 44 shots in his most recent start, which I think really sealed the award for him and also had a really strong game against Quinnipiac at the very beginning of the season. His first college game going up against the defending national champion, 29 saves and an overtime win over the Bobcats. But, Another guy that really I think has popped um, and, you know, or at least had that one game where you're just like, whoa, there's something here is Harabal. And Harabal did shut out Minnesota State, faced 32 shots, stopped all of them. Uh, that game was on flow hockey. Uh, they did lose to Boston University uh, the following weekend 
um, and then tied them the next game, and he started both those games. So I think that we've seen Harabal take the reins. He is a massive goaltender, tons of potential, and you also have to keep in mind that the initial plan was not for him to go to uh, UMass this season. He was expected to spend another year in the USHL. That doesn't happen, and now he's getting the reps, which was really important. You wanted to make sure if you're going to go to school early, you want to make sure you're getting the reps, and he certainly is. Meanwhile, for Cameron Whitehead, you know, great USHL. All, all three of these guys were USHL goalies and did a, did a really nice job. You know, Whitehead's two and two so far with Northeastern. Um, you know, I think he's he's got the size, he's got the poise. You know, I think there's a lot to like about him. Uh, he did have one shutout, a 13 save shutout against Stonehill, um, but then uh, you know they did suffer a couple of losses where he gave up a few goals. I think he's going to be fine. That's a player that you know, has, has had a, a lot of good success. But I think those two guys, or those three guys, rather, are all going to be big-time players. And you look at Hockey East as a whole, and you see three freshman goalies for teams that, you know, have some aspirations for this season. And it just goes to show you the importance of uh, that position and, and making sure whoever it is, regardless of age and experience, they're getting the opportunities. And that's certainly the case with those three players. All right, our next question comes from another one of our regular questioners, and this is another draft question. This one comes from Random Task 68. Do you think there's a market inefficiency when it comes to the NHL draft, similar to how smaller players used to get passed over frequently or drafted much later? Well, Alex, I think that the... Uh, the small players are starting to get passed over again a little bit or drafted later again, especially when they're defensemen um, as, as is going to be interesting this year, we have a lot of big defensemen, so not necessarily a surprise there, but the, one of the market inefficiencies that I think NHL teams have spotted, and it is starting to become less of an inefficiency because everybody is starting to do it is drafting re-entry players. So players that have already um, ha- have been draft eligible and passed over. And I think that, more teams are looking specifically at the players that are on the college track because they have more time to sign them. So we saw, but but that's not, it's not exclusive to them because we've seen a lot of re-entry players drafted out of the CHL as well. And sometimes guys that have been drafted before and didn't get signed, get drafted again. So I think that the reason teams are looking at that is you've got a little bit more of a book on the player because you have all your notes from their draft season. And then as you start looking at the player that coming season, you get to see all those improved and all those different things. On top of that, you also have a player that, you know, you've got, they, they've developed more. So you get a better idea of what they're ultimately going to be. That one year, you'd be shocked at how big of a difference that one year makes. And it's one of the reasons why there is a push to move the draft back a little bit. But I think teams have spotted this as an opportunity especially in the mid rounds to get better value on those mid to late round picks by picking players that are, you know, maybe it's a a second year eligible USHL player, or, you know, you look at some of the, how early, like Adam Guyon was a second year eligible last year. So, you know, he goes and nobody knew who he was the year before. And then he, he becomes the first goalie off the board. You know, Thomas Millich was a third year eligible drafted by, the Winnipeg Jets after winning a gold medal with Canada and winning the WHL and being the CHL goaltender of the year. So, you know, there's a lot you, you know, you have all of those accolades that kind of build up for a player. So that helps too. 
Um, so I, I think that that is one of the things that teams are focusing on is it's like, hey, we if we, we're not going to ignore these second-year eligible players. Some of those guys are in college. Some of those guys are in the USHL. Some of them are in the CJHL. You know, some of them are – they could be really anywhere. Um, and we're seeing teams that are saying, we got a good book on them. Let's go ahead and make that move again. And I think we will see that a fair amount this year. I think about guys like – um, last year, Cole Knubel being a good example, Sammy Walker, or not Sammy Walker, um, uh, Sam Harris, you know, th- those are players that, that, you know, got passed over and, and people were interested in them and they got more looks last year. And, you know, Cole Knubel has a chance to be on the world junior team this year. And that's the kind of, you know, the, the flyers got him in the fourth round. So, you know, those are, those are where areas where I think teams can continue to, uh, take a look. All right, our next one is an Artem Levshinov question, and this one comes from Kevin, and Kevin asks, is Artem Levshinov at fifth about right, or is he currently pushing Iserman and Demidov? We have talked about this a little bit before, but I would I did want to talk about not just Levshinov, but the, the, the draft defensemen in general. This is a great year to be looking for a defenseman. There is a lot of talent on the blue line this year, and, and to me right now, Levshinov is the number one guy. But you can also find a lot of people that are starting to lean more heavily towards uh, Anton Siliev in the in 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 the KHL right now, um, mainly because he's a six foot seven defenseman who's producing rare commodity, not something you see often. Um, you know, I think the difference between I, I think Lev Schnabs a better skater. I think that he's also got some more well-roundedness to his game. I think he's a little more polished, whereas Siliev is a little bit more raw. So you think the ceiling on him is incredible. I think that both of those guys are going to push at least Demidov, possibly even Iserman. The thing about Iserman is, is that his goal scoring has been so off the charts this year, currently on pace for if let's say the NTDP under 18s play 56 games this season, he's currently on pace to score over 80 goals, which would be a, a record by a lot in that, in that league. And I don't, I'd have to go back and look. I'm not sure that we've seen a player in their draft year score 80 plus goals. Um, and that's kind of hard to overlook. Um, so, so I would say that, you know, Cole Iserman and Macklin Celebrini to me are far and away one and two. I think that those two guys are, are way up there, but I do think that people are looking at Siliev. People are looking at Lev Shinov. People are looking at Sam Dickinson. They're looking at, um, you know, a number of these top end defensemen that have a chance to, you know, have some success. So I think that the top of this draft is very much in play for any one of these defensemen. Um, I still personally feel that Celebrini is far and away one for me. Um, I still feel that Cole Eiserman is two for me. But now I'm starting to have these conversations and, and discussions and thinking about is Levshinov three? Is Siliev three? Is Siliev four? You know, like those are the kinds of things we're talking about and then Demidov is out long term. Aaron Kiviharyu is out long term. You know, so there there are players that are are not going to be able to showcase themselves and allow these players to kind of build that gap up. So I, I do think that uh, that that Levshinov is one of those guys that's that's going to push and and he's going to be a, a top end guy. All right, our last question uh, comes from Matapumo. I think I'm saying that right, and it. This question is, if you could slot any player from this upcoming draft to play alongside Lucas Reichel, who would it be and why? Also, what do you think of Reichel's development so far being pushed center? All right, Mike. Well, thank you for the question. And 
You know, that's a, it's a it's a hard one to answer because I think you know teams are not going to be drafting for specific like who would be on it, who who could play on his line. You know, like I think I think teams have those discussions. Where is this player going to fit? How do we? How do we, you know all all of that? Um, but it's hard for me, you know, to say specifically which player belongs in that discussion. I mean, you know, if you're a center, you always want to have. If if you're a center that can make plays as 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 Lucas Reichel can, you know you say, oh well, we certainly want him want a wing, right? And then you say, well, Cole Eiserman would make a lot of sense, um, you know. And I think he would, you know, Cole Eiserman would be great if you could get a Cole Eiserman, um, and then you have Eiserman and Bedard. I wouldn't play them on the same line because I don't think that those are two guys that you want together. But I do think Eiserman with Reichel. Uh, that works for everybody. That helps you distribute your scoring and different things like that. You know, I, I, the way that Reichel plays, I think you would pr- you would probably want a bigger forward with him. You probably would want somebody that has a little more power in their game. Um, and the thing is, is that there aren't a ton of big guys in this forward group. There's not a lot of power forwards that you're going to see kind of come through here. There's a lot of guys that are 5'10", 5'11". Um, you know, there there's not a ton of of guys like that. One player that is coming to mind, however... Um, and we've talked about him on this podcast before, is Michael Brandsag-Nygaard, who is a Norwegian player playing in Sweden right now in the Allsvenskan. He's got a little bit of size. He's got a little bit of jam. And he also uh, has some strength and some and, and some work ethic. So, you know, Reichel is more, he's got some good soft skill. He's got some good skating, you know, and and I've seen him in, in, at top-level competitions where he's really put a put a good foot forward playing alongside wingers that are 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 better scorers than he is. Because I don't think he's going to be a goal scorer. I think he's going to be more of a setup man, more of a pass-first guy. Um, so, you know, you look at the guys like Iserman and Demidov, if you're at the top of the draft, which we think the Blackhawks will be. I mean, it, there's a lot left to be desired about where they're at as a as a, as a a team at the moment. Um, but, you know, we talked about last week, I, Igor Chernyshov, another guy that has size, that has skill, you know, that has a scoring knack. You know, those types of players, I think that the Blackhawks really need to try to get a little bit bigger up front with some of their forward prospects. Think about guys that they have, Bedard, Reichel, Frank Nazar, you know, getting bigger up front and, and Oliver Moore. Like those are all guys that are average to below average size. Bring in some size for that. As far as how Reichel's development is going, like the, the question will be long term. Is he going to be a center long term for the Chicago Blackhawks? And if he's not, is that a is that a failure? I don't really think so. I think it's great that he's playing center. Um, you look at the different guys they have in their system: Nazar, Moore. You know, I think Moore is probably more geared towards the center position, more of that two way kind of speed center um, that would that would fit really well as like a potential number two down the road, um, maybe a number three, and then you know Reichel's your number two. Um, but I think the nice thing about when you are developing a player to become a center, it's a lot easier to develop them to become wingers than centers. So you're going that extra mile and and putting them in that position. You know you have flexibility there. I'm not concerned about Lucas Reichel. What I am a little bit concerned about if you're a Chicago Blackhawks fan is there's not a lot there right now. And and they knew that going in. They weren't going to be competing this year. They tried to get as many veteran players around them. But I just think this is a team that just is so incomplete at the moment that it's hard for guys like Reichel, and it'll be hard for Bedard at times as well, 
to produce. They don't have enough depth. They don't have enough talent around them to support them and the skills that they need to develop. I'm not saying that, you know, that this is going to be a, a lost cause for the Blackhawks because in the end, these guys are playing NHL games. They're getting significant minutes. They're getting significant reps. That's going to help. But I don't think that that's necessarily, um, you know, I, I'm not worried about the long term there. And so that's that's kind of an interesting it's an interesting question. I think the Blackhawks are going to be fascinating to follow as they go through this rebuild because they have some pieces in place. They have guys like Reichel Korchinski and obviously the centerpiece being Bedard. Um, you know, they have to put all of their focus into making sure that those players are insulated and continuing to develop. All right. Well, that is it for all the questions. And that's it for today's episode as well. I want to thank you for taking the time with us. Um, I know it was a little bit of a heavier topic today, but you know, you, I think we need to continue to have that discussion about Adam Johnson and about what happened. And just to, con- we can't allow this to just go by without action being taken. And that's where I really hope that we, we, you know, the stakeholders across the hockey world get together and figure that out. And we will continue to talk about that as well um, here where when, as, as developments happen, as we learn more about the incident in question, as the facts continue to come out, we will continue to talk about it because it is such an important thing across the hockey world. And I do thank you for sticking with me through that. Uh, to everybody that asked questions today, thank you so much. And for all of you listening, a huge thanks to Amanda for producing today's episode. We'll be back next week with much more as we talk more prospects on Talking Hockey Sense. We're closing in on our 100th ever episode. So uh, very excited about that as well. And we we'll may have to do something special for that. Stay tuned. But anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. My name is Chris Peters. This is Talking Hockey Sense. We'll catch you next time.